So there we were talking again about the importance of retreats. And I think, you know, at this time in the country when when there is a lot of turmoil, when there is a lot of distress, there is something about really trusting in that invitation of God to turn again to the Lord, to to turn our hearts and turn our minds to prayer. And even as we talk now, I can see running through on ENCA, we're looking at the prayer services that are being held around the country as people are concerned about what is happening, as people are wondering about how to respond, what is an appropriate response, especially for those who may not feel particularly drawn to any one political party and not wanting to go and support rallies of whoever, but really nonetheless a concern for the country as a whole. I think there is at this moment a real invitation to prayer. And if for those of you who are Catholic, tomorrow at Holy Trinity, they will be offering, the Jesuits will be offering a series of reflections throughout the day, inviting people to come into the church just to pray for peace, to pray for the country, to pray for change, to pray for change of heart. And there's something about that that I think is, is not to be underestimated. I remember many years ago when I was a, a student at Wits, I was uh, chatting with someone who was doing a lot of work on, uh, she was writing her doctorate on the transition from the old, from the apartheid regime to the new South Africa. And I remember her saying she was part of a group of academics who were kind of looking at this. And she was kind of a nominal Catholic. She wasn't, she wasn't practicing, but she came from a Catholic family. And I remember her saying one day, she said, she said, almost in jokingly, she said, in their tutorial group, now this is a bunch of academics at Wits, they're not going to be leaning towards a religious view of the world. They had talked a little about the impact they thought prayer had had on the nature of the peaceful transition, um, that when they looked at it, they really couldn't understand how we hadn't had a bloody civil war. And there was a reality that at that time, if you remember, people were praying. There was a lot of prayer, and they were praying for peace. And I think now again, that call for us to be praying for a change of heart in our leadership, for a a, a depth of compassion in society for the poor and for those who are most vulnerable, and for really for praying for peace and for praying for a willingness to engage with each other, that is, I think, where we, where we should be at the moment. And for some people, it's very helpful to do that in a, in a quiet, reflective space, to take time aside, to, to, to go and sit in a church, to just to spend time asking the Lord to be with us. God is always with us, but really to, to be with our leaders, to be with those who are, who are at work in the country at this time. And that there's something in that that we should be doing now, that that we all South Africans are called to be working to build the kingdom here in our country. Not all South Africans, all people who are here are called to be building the kingdom here. So we're just waiting to get Father Anthony Egan on the line. Um, I don't know if we've got him yet. Not yet. We're just looking for him. And... While we wait to to think about Anthony, uh, about chatting with Anthony, we're going to talk to to Anthony a little bit about what's been going on in the last week. And of course, for South Africans, this has been a momentous week. Um, And what it means, what does it mean to be downgraded? What does it mean to have a cabinet reshuffle? 
What does it? What does this all mean for all of us? And particularly, what does it mean for those of us who feel like we don't have a voice, like we don't have easy access to to hearing um, our own needs being heard? What does that mean for people? And and how do we think about that? And you know, last week we were talking about that papal document, Popularum Progressio. And I wonder if any of you have read it since then. And if you have read any of it, if you'd like to phone in and talk about what you thought about it. But even if you haven't, if you want to Google it, you know, it was written by Paul VI 50 years ago, 50 years and a few days now ago. But do you remember we were talking about that document and while we were talking about Popularum Progressio, we were really thinking through in that document, well, what is it? The Pope was saying to us, what are the key ideas that we should be looking at and thinking about? The common good, care for the poor. Um, and I've just got the signal that we've got Father Anthony on the line. Anthony, good morning. Good morning. How are you this morning? I'm all right. So... We're battling with phones. <laughs> we are battling with phones again. I'm so sorry about that. No, well, it happens. Yeah, it happens. We seem to have no network for my phone down here. Anyway, oh. so we're on another line. Right. So what we were wanting to chat to you about, Anthony, was just to talk a little bit about what's going on in the country and and just to try and bring to bear on that, I thought, some of the, the teachings of the church, especially Catholic social teaching, we're, we're, we were just saying online last week was 50 years since the publication of Popularum Progressio, and, and that really, I mean, it seems like quite a, um, I'm looking for the right word now, it, it seems like quite a prophetic document. If we look at what's going on now and look at what the Pope was saying there, talking about and he talks about all sorts of issues, the common good, the widening gap between wealth and poverty, his, the problems he sees with colonization even 50 years ago and its legacy. And then looking at, at what's going on in the country now and, and what do you think about, you know, about the cabinet reshuffle and then the, the possible down, the downgrade that certainly some of the rating agencies have given to South Africa and the consequences for us from that? Right. Sorry, that's a lot okay, of... Okay, I think there are a number of key points that we have to look at. I mean, I think cabinet reshuffle was on the cards for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect that there are quite a few uh, reasons behind that, but at the very least, the one is about consolidation of power. Mm-hmm. And I see this as a tightening of control over the country of Zimmer's faction within the ruling party. This is basically around the question of gaining control. If you look at the, if you look at the trajectory, you can see a pattern. Mm-hmm. You know, he started off by controlling the security cluster. Now he's got the economic cluster. Right. They are his direct appointees. They are people who support him and answerable to him. And I think the whole pattern there is towards greater sort of centralized control for himself. And I think points not just to himself, but also pointing towards the end of the year, towards the electoral conference. Because he knows all too well that there can be an upset. And if there's a rebellion within the ranks, uh, his candidate will, will not get elected 
president of the ANC and therefore you know, contender for 2019. So if you look at the, the look at the political, uh, I look at it as a, as a political strategy that's been evolving over quite a, uh, a period of time, and it's, it's actually it shows a very sophisticated and clever uh, bit of political operation. And uh, and I mean, the the point is, yes. Uh, the impact of this on the country's economy, as we all know, the land is weakened. We've been reduced to junk status by Standard & Poor's. Uh, it may squeeze the problem of getting loans from overseas, particularly from government loans from overseas, are uh, you know just increase even further. This will have an impact upon the economy. So obviously, it will make imports more expensive. And it will also sort of probably slow down investment because investor confidence will go down because of the uh, of the of the junk status. Can All you of which just sorry? Doesn't seem to matter too much. Too soon. Can you just can we pause you there hmm? for a moment, Anthony? A number of people we were just chatting before we we kind of came in here, and we were talking about how a lot of South Africans don't really understand the link between a lack of foreign investment coming in and the junk status. Can you just tease out for, for those of us who don't immediately see how those two link together, what that link is and what the consequences are in terms of job security for people in the country? Yeah. Look, I mean, I, I can't give you all the technical stuff, but the basics, as far as I understand it, as far as you take the, um, uh, the, the, the status. The status gives you, um, you know, what, what, how, how other... Countries and and lenders see South Africa as a risk. Um, the, the more you are seen as a risk, the more they will charge interest on whatever money that you borrow from overseas. Okay. And when you do that, of course, the cost of repayment goes higher, which means that particularly the state will then have to find ways of getting more money out uh, to to pay their pay their debt. But at the same time, the fact that they look at this and say, well, the states, states got to pay more interest is because they consider the state less stable. Mm. And when you have a state that isn't stable, who may or may not be able to pay back their loans, uh, foreign investors will decide whether or not the state is going to do something stupid or dangerous, you know, something along a Venezuela line. Uh, and, of course, if you're a foreign investor, you're not going to put money into the country. You're not going to create, you know, factories or, or, or invest in, in some existing business to build it up, which means, basically, that you will not be, new jobs will not be created. And in some cases, if confidence collapses completely, you will find uh, foreign investors will pull their money out because they're threatened that it's going to be taken away from them or, or that they just will lose. Uh, and because of the, you know, if you have a war, a civil war or something in a country like that, or if it's unstable or if government seems to be on the brink of nationalizing stuff or any of those sort of things, investors just hit the button and they send the money somewhere else, which basically means that you lose jobs. So it's either you don't gain jobs or you can actually directly lose jobs as a result of investor confidence. All right, being, being 
hurt. Okay, that, that's helpful, I think, for people just to understand what the mechanisms are and, and why there is a link between those two. Sorry, I, I interrupted you mid-thought. So we not were, at all, not at all. We were talking there about um, the, 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 the consolidation of power and the fact that power, it seems Consolidation that of power, and, and the problem with that, of course, is that, you know, it's done with full knowledge that to a large degree, in 2019, large numbers of people will not change their voting pattern. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's based on a gamble that no one is ever, no, no current supporter of the ANC is ever going to vote EA. Right. And they might go over to the EFF, but not in a significant number, as we've seen in previous elections. So he's basically gambling on the idea that he will consolidate power in 2019 as well in the next election. And patterns seem to suggest that there is some truth in it, but not, not as much as perhaps had been thought in the past. Hmm. Certainly um, in the urban areas, the vote is more flexible. But it's in the rural areas that there is almost no contest. And in a sense, one can almost win in the rural areas with a few urban areas that, that have such a strong base of support that it makes no difference. So basically, I mean, I've heard people using words like dictator and tyrant around Zuma because they feel that he, he seems to have set up the, the way the ANC functions, but also in terms of his understanding of how the vote functions, he understands that that it doesn't matter what he does because he can do anything and there will be no uh, negative consequence for him because he will continue to be in power. Yeah, um, you know, I think there is, you know, I, 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 get, I get worried about banding around terms like Big Pisa mm -hmm. um, because it, 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 it usually has an association with one person ruling mm. and it's not. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's ruling with the consent of his his colleagues, of his members of cabinet. The fact that he's able, because of the Constitution, to do what he does, uh, it's because, in a sense, the Constitution has given uh, the president the kind of power that he has. Right. Uh, and there is far less ability on the part of, for example... Parliament to challenge him in many respects. You know, you have to go through no confidence debates, which then become a ritual uh, where he wins. He wins the no confidence debate because he's got numbers on his side. Uh, and so, in a sense, I wouldn't call it a. You know, I, 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 I don't like to call it a dictatorship. I think it's just it's just a flaw in the whole democratic system. Um, we also look, for example, at the way. Appointments happen in Parliament because we have a proportional representation system. Uh, somebody has to put forward a list. The list is based upon ultimately who the who the leadership of the party decides. If you control the leadership of the party, you control the list. If you control the list, you, you can you know you can get loyalty uh, out of it because of course you can also remove people. In Parliament, you know, in a case that they have to, you know, step down or that they have to contest the election, I mean, you simply 
redeploy somebody. And that, that, that's also within the Constitution. Uh, it has a right to do so. And it's within the, uh, within the Constitution of the ruling party. So you have a, uh, so you have a system which, which basically melds into each other, it interlocks, mm-hmm. um, which, which gives somebody like Zuma the ability to, um, to establish this kind of hegemonic control. Without being a dictator, he doesn't have to roll tanks into, into Cape Town um, and, 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 and you know, arrest the opposition. I mean, he doesn't need it. He's, he's basically rendered them irrelevant. That's that's very interesting. So there's a there's a real sense that yeah he he there hasn't been a show of there haven't been many shows I mean other really than Marikane, of military or police violence, because constitutionally everything he's doing is constitutional. That's a, that, that is an interesting point that I hadn't thought of before. But yeah, uh, look, I mean you know one may one may draw certain analogies, I think, but they don't go far enough. And then you can't really make them go too far between South Africa in 2017 and Germany in 1933. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the same kind of, uh, of structure of centralization of power, constitutionally elected, etc., etc. But where I think it breaks down is there isn't that kind of show of political power, political strength. You know, you don't have uh, brown shirts on the streets beating up opposition party members. Mm. Uh, you don't have uh, uh, a party basically carrying out essentially sort of state terrorism. I mean, that that doesn't happen uh, in in South Africa. And uh, you know, the skeptics will say yes, yeah. but I, I think that is that is something that we can see the similar kind of thing. You know. Constitutional democracy becoming its own grave digger is how some people would describe that kind of thing. Right. So what what do you think, Anthony, of um, tomorrow's call by by some of the opposition parties, but also by some of the civil society groups like the South the Save South Africa group? Um, for a strike or a stay away or marches, mm. what what do you think about that? Uh, I'm also I'm also aware that there've been numerous religious leaders calling for vigils for prayer um, and for for church services, praying for peace, praying for transformation. What do you think about these responses? Look, I think they are inevitable. I think they're also an interesting measure of the degree to which Zuma and Co. have support. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really see it as a test of support rather than some kind of apocalyptic demonstration that's going to bring down the president. Um, it's, this is not like the Philippines in 1986 when people mass in the streets and they strike down the avenue and the president is forced out of office because he's government and army turn against him. That's not going to happen here. No. Uh, so in a sense, I think, it's, I think it's more of a measure of looking at how much opposition there is. And if he sees there's a lot of opposition, the theory is he may back down. I personally am skeptical. I personally think it's futile. But I still think people should be doing it if they believe they should. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
one must express one's disgust and horror and, and frustration uh, peacefully uh, as much as possible, uh, even though ultimately I don't, I don't see it as having any ultimate successful result. I mean, I'm, I'm being very I'm pessimistic about, about these kinds of things uh, because I do think the structures of power are such that it makes all these protests just futile. Hmm. One other question I have, Anthony, is to do with um, the internal ANC uh, process of, of um, election that's coming up at the end of this year and whether you think there... I know that a lot of the newspapers are talking about um, the, the real fight for the leadership uh, that's going on internally between people like Ramaphosa... Um, and others, what do you think is likely to happen at the end of the year? Do you think what's going on now um, is going to hugely influence those internal um, choices? Um, yes, I think it will. And I think there are, it could influence a number of ways. I mean, the first scenario is that while Zimbabwe has managed to control things, opposition will keep their heads down and play along with him until the end of the year and then express their um, their frustration and disgust by essentially chucking out his, his whole group and bringing in people representing a different perspective. Uh, in other words, a bit like a, a reprise of Polokwane in 2004. Mm -hmm. So you have, for, for example... Uh, but, but that would entail having the branches from around the country coming together and being um, united against against Jacob Zuma, and that 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 of course is a very very um, it's a tenuous touch and go thing. I mean, to get to get the, the measure of the branches. I mean, for example, I, I think we can say the Kharteng ANC will be very anti anyone com coming forward as a Zuma candidate. Mm. or seen to be a Zuma candidate. Uh, but when you get to the KZN areas, he's got that sewn up. So then you then you balancing off places like Northwest, Palakwani, Free State. And and so in a sense, it, it comes down to a kind of game of numbers uh, to see who might who might get elected uh, and, and whether that will change. Because remember, it's not just the presidential candidate mm. or the president of the party that matters. It is actually the national executive because... That will determine not only, you know, who will be the next president candidate in 2019. It will also determine who will ultimately choose the members of parliament, yeah. and and that will that will lead to a, a whole pattern. Because ultimately, what happens is, although people nominate candidates from branch level upwards into the into the into the leadership. For, for the party list, what will have been, what ultimately happens is that uh, a committee at the top uh, sift and, and sort out and ultimately work out the list. And the list is important because you see the list is on the side of Zuma and the uh, because the national executive uh, is pro Zuma and the president is an anti Zuma person. Uh, it will all it will mean is that you might have a situation where you have lame duck president of the country mm. uh, who will who will have very limited um, ability
ability to manoeuvre because the power base is not there. So it's really about the election of the NEC is is, crypt, is critical. Yeah, I mean it's not just the, I mean, it's, it's the presidential candidate, but it's also the NEC. If you look back to Polokwane and you look at the lists, if you look at the leadership that got elected, I mean it was interesting. It was it was I did a calculation. It was between, it was it's roughly sixty forty in the in the split of votes in terms of who got who got in and who lost. And the loser was always an Mbeki candidate. That was before 40%. The 60% was a Zuma candidate. And I did a went through with the top 10. And of the top 10, also, I think only one was a pro-Mbeki person, or seen as a pro-Mbeki person. So there is this kind of, of factional politics going on at the grassroots uh, that, that translates into the national politics. But I mean, the national also transcribes down to... Now, on the other hand, of course, as I say, that's the one factor. The other factor, of course, would be if there is an economic meltdown between now and December, and people realize that, well, in a sense, they've been led into a disaster, there could be a rebellion against them completely hmm. um, in, 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 the, in, the, in the electoral conference. Alternatively, they could be you know, playing up sort of ultranationalism, uh, almost a kind of suicidal refusal to see the problem coming from outside and blaming the foreigners, blaming white people, blaming Americans and Europeans. And it could even create an even stronger prosumer block emerging in, uh, in the end of the year. Yeah. So, you can, you know, it's not easy to make us very clear speculation. You can, you, can, you, can, you can predict certain patterns and trends, but you have to be very careful. Okay. Just before we, we kind of come to an end, Anthony, that's that's kind of helpful just to put the, the the landscape out there. In terms of the church's teaching, uh, what would you as a priest be advising Catholics, Christians to be thinking about, praying about, and doing, given what is happening in the country? Well, yeah, that's a good question. Um, you see, I... I sound, I'm sounding very pessimistic this morning. It's probably because it's before 11 a.m. Uh, but I, I tend to to see that most Christians follow their noses and follow their stomachs, and the teaching of the church comes third. But if we are get if we get past those kinds of instinctive reactions and self-interest, and we look at the the teaching of the church on this, I think the teaching of the church stands for Principles of democracy and transparency, principles of freedom, principles of equality, all those kind of principles. Mm. Principles of honesty and integrity in public life, certainly. Um, Notice I don't say democracy necessarily, but I'm saying integrity in public life. And, you know, if I look at those in those terms, I think we can be quite clear where the church stands in, in terms of the, the current incumbent president of South Africa, that he seems to have violated all those principles. And therefore seems to be morally, if not, he's not constitutionally, but morally illegitimate. And therefore, in a sense, the church would recognize the person, that any person who wishes to protest against such a man has the right to protest against him. Right. And we need to be need Obviously, we have to consider how one does that, and 
no, I, I suppose that would be my that would be my analysis of it. I don't know whether you know, I'm not saying that. Uh, I, I think politically, as something may be futile, even if morally it may be essential. That difference between uh, legitimacy and legality. Yeah, I understand yeah. that. Look, I mean, you know, it may be politically futile in the sense that a few marches is not going to bring somebody down. I mean, you know, a few protests did not bring down Adolf Hitler in the 1930s. Um, and there were protests in Germany at the time. They, they were just brushed over. In fact, they were, they were, they were brushed over with tanks. Uh, but I think what we have to look at is you know, whether that still nevertheless make, makes it a moral thing to do. Yes, I think it is. Obviously, within all the kind of you know, moral constraints of how we act, you know, the church still teaches that you can't be a monster in order to get rid of a monster. Well, thank you very much for sharing with us this morning, even though it's been somewhat heavy in content. But thank you for being with us, Anthony. A pleasure, Francis. And we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. So you listening to the Jesuit Institute are here on Radio Veritas, and we've been talking to Father Anthony Egan and just talking about the political landscape at the moment and ending with a sense of, well, what is our response as Catholics? I'm very conscious that we are at this moment heading towards Holy Week, that we are moving into the most sacred season of the year. We are That is where we are going. It's what our eyes are set upon, if you like. And so we're going to listen now to um, one of the hymns that really picks up that Hosanna cry of Jesus as he enters Jerusalem. And maybe for those South Africans who are feeling somewhat pessimistic and depressed and like this is all too much to handle. You might like to think about uh, the experience of Jesus and of the apostles as they as they went towards Jerusalem, that, you know, that was an experience that looked very much like defeat was was coming towards them at great pace. So perhaps just to ponder that as we as we listen to some music. <laughs> 